0: Tonight we begin in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're really going to begin at verse 12 and continue on to the end of the chapter. But it's worth it for us to just sort of consider what we studied last week, just so we have this idea of, of what Paul is getting at in the flow of the context. Uh, last week we studied the end of chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5, where Paul was really interested in this whole idea of the Thessalonians understanding and being ready for the day of the Lord. You see, they had these misconceptions in their mind about the nature of the resurrection and how it would affect those who had already died before the return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul very uh, beautifully Uh, both with a a theologian's mind, but then also with a pastor's heart. He sorted these issues out for the Thessalonians in his letter. And you can just imagine them all being gathered together around, hearing this letter from uh, someone there at the congregation who read the whole thing to them, and going, oh, yes, okay, great, you know, yes, and nodding. It answered the questions that were so heavily on their minds. But but now beginning at verse 12, Paul begins what's really sort of a closing section. And as I look at this page on my Bible, it really doesn't take up that much room, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, because what you have here is some extraordinarily short verses. You have a few verses here that are just, you know, three or four words long. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at verse 16, in my version, it's only two words. That's got to be one of the shortest verses in the entire Bible. I mean, if you take that verse in the Gospel of John, Jesus wept, it's just a little bit shorter because there's fewer letters in it than saying in verse 16, rejoice always. But it's still just a, a verse with two words in it. And so even though we're not going to study a lot of words there here this evening from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, I want you to get a feel for how important this section is. Because here, as Paul is concluding his letter, you just get the feeling that his mind is flooded with closing exhortations. And we need to remind ourselves of the great pastor's heart that Paul had for the Thessalonians. He loved these people, and he loved them as a pastor, so he had a great passion that they would continue on in a strong and increasingly growing Christian life. So here begins this section here, verse 12, with these exhortations to Christian living. Uh, Verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Do you see what Paul's saying there in verses 12 and 13? He wanted the Thessalonians to recognize those who labored among them. It's with the mindset that Christians are to always recognize their leaders. And I want you to notice in verse 12, the leaders are described in three different ways. First of all, they're described as those who labor among you. I find that very interesting. That leaders, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, are not first designated by their office or by their title, but by what they do. They labor among you. You you know, a title in ministry is fine. Uh, Pastor this, I don't know, some people even give titles that I wouldn't really agree with, like reverend or this or that. But, you know, get away from the titles. The more important thing is if the title accurately describes what the person does. And so you say, well, a person has the title of a pastor. Well, are they truly a pastor in that congregation? A person has a title of deacon or elder or some other thing. Do they truly have a work that goes along with what that title describes? So those who labor among you, first of all. Then secondly, in verse 12, he describes leaders as those who are over you in the Lord. Recognize, leaders are recognized, I should say, as being over the congregation in the sense of ruling and providing headship, much in the way that a shepherd is over the sheep. We have to admit, this describes a clear and a legitimate order of authority. And then thirdly, he says, and they admonish you. Okay, so leaders are to labor, they're to be over, and they are to admonish. Do you know what that word means, to admonish? It literally means to caution somebody, to reprove them gently, or to warn them. It's an interesting word. I like what one commentator says about it. One of my favorite Bible commentators, a man named Leon Morris, he says of this word, he says, the tone is brotherly, but it is big brotherly. In other words, it's the way that a big brother would speak to a little brother and say, Now come on, this is what you need to do. It's not harsh, it's not mean, yet at the same time, it's a warning, it's an encouragement, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of coaching on to do better and better. And so here, uh, these three ideas are very much tied together into this one idea that this is what a leader does. He labors. He's over in the sense of authority, and he admonishes. Well, what's the responsibility of the congregation to do in light of these leaders? What does he say there? He says, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Christians are to esteem their leaders, and not only esteem them, Paul says, esteem them very highly in love. And why do they do it? Notice, for their work's sake. They, They don't deserve esteem because of their title. They don't deserve esteem because of their personality, but they deserve this esteem because of their labor on behalf of God's people. Well, I want you to notice here, just in these two verses, when Paul talks about leaders and the regard that congregations should have for their leaders, twice He mentions the work of the ministry, and he connects the idea of work to the respect that these servants should have from those that they serve. Now, I would say in my mind, this suggests at least two things. First of all, I think that if most people in a church, most congregants, if you want to call them that, if they knew and understood all the work that's done by those people who have spiritual oversight over them, they'd probably appreciate and respect them more. I mean, how common is it? That people in church genuinely believe that, that what a pastor does is, well, he works for a couple hours on Sunday and that's it. Now, I will say that there probably are some unfaithful pastors, that that really is about the extent of their work. But for any godly pastor, th- those few hours in which services are held on Sunday, th- that's just one part of a week that's very, very busy working for the Lord. And again, I would say that if people in the church knew and understood the work that was done by those who have spiritual oversight over them, they'd probably appreciate them and respect their leaders even more. But secondly, and I would put this over on those pastors and leaders, I would say, listen, pastor, listen, leader in the church, work is an essential aspect of the ministry. And there is absolutely no place for a labor, uh, excuse me, for a lazy pastor. I like what the old English commentator Adam Clark said about this. He says, in the first place, he states that they labor. It follows from this that all idle bellies are excluded from the number of pastors. In other words, if you're an idle belly, if you just like to sit around, if you're essentially lazy, don't go into the ministry. And so it's important for us to emphasize these things and to understand that Paul... Well, you would just say he instructs the Thessalonians to both esteem and love their pastor. And you would say that if a Christian can't esteem and love their pastor, they should either get on their knees and ask the Holy Spirit to change their heart, or they should go somewhere else and put themselves under a pastor that they do esteem and love. So first, recognize leaders. But did you notice the thing he threw in at the end of verse 13? He said, be at peace among yourselves. Now, I wonder if Paul didn't connect the two ideas here. Esteem your leaders, love them, respect them. And if you really want to do your leaders in the church a favor, get along with one another. Be at peace among yourselves. That's a great way to esteem and love the leaders of your church. There are few things more discouraging to a pastor than when there's fighting and quarreling and squabbling among the people of the congregation. So if you really love, if you really esteem those leaders, then what should you do? You should be at peace among yourselves. Now, verse 14, now we brethren, excuse me, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Okay, now Paul is exhorting here. Did you notice how he began verse 14? Now we exhort you. To exhort is to tell somebody what they must do, but it doesn't have a a sharpness to it. It doesn't have a critical spirit to it. It's not rebuke, or or condemnation but neither is exhortation just a suggestion or advice it's urgent it's serious he says now let's get serious about this and do this we exhort you well what were they exhorted to do look at verse 14 warn those who are unruly comfort the faint-hearted uphold the weak be patient with all four things right Paul told the Thessalonians now I want you to notice the people, not only the pastors and the leaders, he told the people to minister in a variety of ways, depending on the state of the person who needs the ministry. So if somebody is unruly, that is, they're, they're disobedient and rebellious, what should you do with them? You should warn them. Other people in the church, the faint-hearted, they need to be comforted. And then there's the weak. What do you do for the weak? You uphold them. But, but be patient with everybody in all the ministry that you do. Let, let's think about those three specific things that he listed first. The unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. The, the unruly are those people who are out of order. It's interesting, the word that he uses there for unruly, it, it's a military word that describes a soldier who breaks ranks or marches out of step. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a whole group of people marching together? And they're all marching together, except one. One of them has his steps all out of order. And you look at it, and you, of course, every eye is drawn to the one person who's out of order, right? And it's really sad. You can't say, well, why can't I look at the 40 people who are marching correctly? Why do I have to look at the one person who isn't marching correctly? But that's just how it is. The unruly person sticks out. And the unruly person is the self-willed one who simply demands to hold their own preference or their own opinion. So what do you do with those? You must warn them, warn them about the consequences and the dangers of their unruliness. Okay, so that's the unruly. What's the next person that he speaks about in verse 14? The faint-hearted. Now the faint-hearted, and this is a wonderful word in the ancient Greek language. This word that he used for faint-hearted, literally it's small-souled. That's who they are. The faint-hearted are the people who are small-souled. By nature or perhaps by experience, they they tend to be timid. They lack courage. Those people need comfort. Now, let's remember what comfort really is. The the ancient Greek, or excuse me, the ancient Latin word that translates comfort for us. It really means not just to, you know, oh, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. Oh, poor dear. That's not the idea of comfort. Comfort means to bring strength. That's what the small-souled person wants and needs. They need assisting strength to be brought to them so the faint-hearted need to be comforted. So we have the unruly, we have the faint-hearted, and then thirdly, we have the weak. What do you do with the weak? You must uphold them. You you, you assist them with an eye to building their own strength instead of perpetuating their weakness. You, You know, sometimes we contribute to people being weak, don't we? Because we don't make them do things for themselves yet. So what do you do? You, you, uh, you uphold the weak, you, you hold them up, you, you strengthen them and, and enable them to walk strong on their own. I, I find it very interesting because earlier Paul spoke in exhortation to different groups to the Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, he spoke to those who were unruly. If you take a look at those verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, he says uh, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are on the outside. Well, those may be the unruly people that Paul had in mind. And then the faint hearted, well, perhaps the faint hearted people are the people that he described In the last time we looked at this, the people who had the great questions about their dead relatives in Christ or their dead friends and brothers and sisters, what about those departed loved ones? And they were really upset over these. And Paul says, well, you're small-souled, you're faint-hearted, you need to be comforted. And the weak, perhaps those were the ones suffering under the temptations to lapse into immorality that we saw earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But no matter what, even as you're warning the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, and upholding the weak, what do you do? You be patient with all. Though different approaches must be taken with different people, Christians must be patient with all. This is because true Christianity is shown by its ability to love and to help difficult people. Now let's think about that. Look, you and I would prefer that all the people around us, that all the people that we come into contact with would be easy people, right? Would be people that really wouldn't draw much from us. And I think we're all alike on that. It's just sort of how we are. But ask yourself, are you shutting out of your life all the difficult people? Now, if you only have difficult people in your life, my prayers are for you. And maybe you need to start selecting some different friends. But listen, on the other hand, you really have to say, if you're isolating yourself from all the difficult people in your life, there's something wrong about that. We, we really shouldn't be the ones to say, well, you know, I, I'll be with people and, and I'll minister to them as long as they don't require too much from me. I think about that sometimes as my role as a Bible college director, because as we get applications for students to come and such, it's easy for us to say, well, we only want the best students. We only want the ones who have had no problems, who are good studiers, who have a great recommendation and great backgrounds. And every semester we're convicted, you know what? We need to allow that we'll take some who have had some problems, some who have had difficulties, because it's not just, let me put it this way, the goal is not just just to make it an easy semester for us, right? The goal is to really do something in these lives. So as he continues on with these uh, exhortations in verse 15, he says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. You see, the Christian should never seek revenge or vengeance, but we should let God take up our side. Instead, we should always pursue what is good, not only for ourselves, but for all. That's having a forgiving heart towards others. Not only is it good for them, but it's good for yourself. You know, when you think about it, when you harbor this kind of bitterness and and unforgiveness towards other people, you're paying the price for it. It's almost as if you think, well, you know, I'll get them. I'll withhold forgiveness. I'll keep my bitterness towards them. I'll hurt them. When really, all along, you're hurting yourself. But I want you to notice something. Starting at verse 16, Paul is going to write about what we might consider more spiritual matters in the Christian life, like prayer and thanksgiving and worship. But please notice, before these spiritual or religious matters come into teaching in, in from the, the um, pen of the Apostle Paul, first he wrote about right relationships, having right relationships with those who are your leaders and having right relationships among your brothers and sisters. This is always important for us to understand. You see, because there's always something in me that wants to work on my prayer life, work on my worship life, work on my life of giving thanks and and honor to God, and all of those things are good. But to isolate that from the way that I live with other people from week to week. Well, Paul won't allow it. First, he addressed personal relationships. Now he's going to talk about sort of your personal spiritual life, beginning here at verse 16, where he says, and I'll read you just verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think this is really remarkable. First he starts and he says, rejoice always. Not only rejoicing in happy things, but in sorrows also. The the Christian can rejoice always because their joy is not based on circumstances, but in God. You know, circumstances change but God doesn't. This is a wonderful thing that God has given us to do. Not only the encouragement, but might I say, am I being too bold to say that this is a command from God to to find some aspect of joy even in the midst of difficult situations? I I wonder if you can look through the Bible and find any command in here that says something like this, uh, complain in the Lord always. And again, I say complain. You'll never see that. Now, you can complain if you like. You you have the liberty in Christ to do that. But listen, you have a greater liberty to rejoice. And so Paul tells us, rejoice always. Secondly, pray without ceasing. That's in verse 17. Christians are to pray continually. Now, obviously, we can't bow our heads, close our eyes, and fold our hands without ceasing. But let's understand, those are customs of prayer, not prayer itself. You know, we sort of have our customs of prayer culturally, right? And for many people in our culture, it's the bowed head, the closed eyes, the folded hands, perhaps standing, perhaps sitting, perhaps kneeling, whatever the posture. In biblical times, the custom of prayer was to open your eyes to heaven, to raise up your hand and to pray like that to pray in that kind of posture. Now, this is what I understand. The the Bible never commands a particular posture for prayer, does it? You're, You're free in Christ. But don't confuse the custom of prayer with prayer itself. Prayer is communication with God, and we can live each minute of the day in a constant, flowing conversation with God. I want you to think about this. If you really understand this command where he says, pray without ceasing, it'll give you a whole new perspective on what prayer is. First of all, it tells us that the use of your voice is not an essential element in prayer, is it? Because you can't be talking always, but you can be praying always. It also tells us that the posture of prayer is not of primary importance. You can pray sitting down, you can pray standing up, you can pray kneeling. By the way, I can make a scriptural case for any one of those. Some, some people say, well, no, standing. That's the biblical posture of prayer because it talks about those who stand by night in the house of the Lord and, and standing in prayer. Well, that's fine. There is scriptural support for that. But I would also say that the Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And so when you sit and pray, aren't you saying, I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Here I am sharing a place in the heavenlies with him, and I want to pray from that posture. Or can't you find several other examples in the scripture where people knelt as they prayed? So again, it reminds us that the posture of prayer is not of primary importance. It also tells us that the place of prayer is not of great importance. It tells us that a particular time of prayer is not so important. And it also tells us that a Christian should never be in a place where he could not pray. So no, we pray without ceasing. Then on to verse 18, what does he say? He says, in everything give thanks. Now, I want you to notice that. He didn't say give thanks for everything, but In everything. And I think there's a difference there, isn't there? We recognize that God's sovereign hand is in charge and not blind fate and not chance. No, 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 no. In everything, give thanks. You know, uh, you, you hear that your child is in some terrible accident, and they're being rushed to the hospital. Now, how can you say, "Oh Lord, I thank you for that." Maybe if you were a person of great faith, you could, but many of us would have a hard time with say, "Lord, I don't know if I can thank you for this, but I can thank you in it. I can thank you that even in this situation, you are sovereign." I sort of like the steps that he lists here too. Re- rejoice always. First, that's joy, right? Secondly, pray without ceasing. And then thirdly, in everything, give thanks. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is thanksgiving. I like that. I don't know how you explain it, but I like how we put those words together. We join together joy and prayer, and the firstborn child is gratitude. Now, notice what he says here in verse 18. Why should you give thanks? And again, I don't think he's saying this only about giving thanks. I think he's saying it about rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and in everything giving thanks. All those three together, that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. After every one of these exhortations, the exhortation to rejoice, the exhortation to pray, the exhortation to give thanks, we're told to do them because it's the will of God. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. The thought is not, this is the will of God, so you must do it. The thought is rather, this is God's will, so you can do it. It isn't always easy to rejoice or to pray without ceasing or to give thanks and everything, but we can do it because it's God's will. Well, that's sort of your personal mentality in your christian life right but now in verses 19 through 22 paul will exhort them in their public worship notice here he says do not quench the spirit do not despise prophecies test all things hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil so what does he tell them to do well first of all notice that these sort of have to do with their worship as they come together in a a public worship first of all don't quench the spirit well, how do you quench the Spirit? Well, I think you can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit by, by doubt, by indifference, by rejection of Him, or, or by the distraction of other people. You, you know, when people start to draw attention to themselves, it is certain to quench the Spirit. You see, that word quench really has to do with putting out of a flame of some sort, putting out a fire or a lamp. And this is the only place in the New Testament where it's used in a metaphorical sense. Uh, You can more accurately translate this phrase, stop putting out the Spirit's fire. You see, this command is based on the familiar image of the Holy Spirit as a flame or or a fire. And I want you to think about that. Think about the the picture of the Holy Spirit being a flame or a fire. You know, you can't create fire. All you can do is provide the environment in which fire can burn brightly. And so when you spark a spark, you're just creating ignition. And then it has to have the proper elements for the fire to burn. It has to have fuel, it has to have oxygen, and it has to have ignition. You can provide the environment for that fire to burn brightly, yet a flame can be extinguished when it's ignored and no longer tended, or when the flame is overwhelmed by something else. And so we need to be careful about that in our life with the Holy Spirit. First of all, that we do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and therefore let the fire go out, or by letting that flame get overwhelmed by something else. And so we don't want to quench the spirit. We don't want to quench the spirit in other people. We don't want to quench the spirit in ourselves. We don't want to quench the spirit in those ministers who lead us. We don't want to quench others by bad examples. No, we want to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning brightly in ourselves and in others. The next thing he mentions here in verse 20, he says, do not despise prophecies. Listen, we recognize that the Lord speaks to and through his people today. And we learn, therefore, to be open to his voice. Now, of course, we always test prophecies. Notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 21. Test all things, hold fast what is good, right? So yes, we're open to the Lord speaking through a prophetic word, but we always test prophecies and we never despise them see, it's very possible that the gift of prophecy was being despised because there were some individuals abusing the gift. I hope I'm not making too much out of a little thing, but let's sort of play, let's pretend with the Thessalonian church, right? We know that there were some lazy people among the Thessalonians, right? Those who refused to work and Paul had to sort of kick them and say, hey, get to work. Well, perhaps these were people who spiritualized their laziness with prophecy. That we also know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we also know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there were some date setters and end time speculators among the Thessalonians. And perhaps they backed up their speculations with supposed prophetic authority. So Paul says, listen, don't despise prophecy. But but listen, if somebody's using prophecy, thus says the Lord, um, I don't have to work and I think you should provide for me. Why don't you test that? Don't despise prophecies, but you should despise that kind of thing. Or if somebody's setting out elaborate end times dates and scenarios and saying, thus saith the Lord, listen, you test all things. So notice the line here. We do not despise prophecies, but we test them. As a matter of, fact, wouldn't you say that we honor prophecy when we test it? When somebody says, hey, I think God's given me a word from the Lord, we honor that prophecy when we say, okay, let's measure it against God's word. We test prophecies, and I would say not only against God's word, but we also test prophecies against the sense of the spirit among other brothers and sisters, right? We believe that as a general rule, now there may be occasional exceptions, but as a general rule, when God speaks to one person, he's also going to speak to other people. And so we just believe that this is commonly the way that the Lord moves. So he says, do not despise prophecies. Notice here verse 21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. You see, evil and deception can show itself even in a spiritual setting. So it's important for Christians to test all things. And when the test has been made, according to God's word and according to the discernment of spirit among the leaders, then what do you do? You hold fast what is good. I want to remind you of something that happened in between the time that Paul left Thessalonica and the time that he wrote this letter from the city of Corinth. He visited a place in between those two. You know, one of the places that he visited, well, Athens was one of the places, but another place that he visited in between Thessalonica and Corinth from where he wrote the letter was Berea. And when Paul was in Berea, he saw that Christians were of a noble character because they heard Paul's preaching and they diligently searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to have more of the heart and mind of the Bereans. So he said, test all things and prove the things that are true. And then he says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. You know, when the testing is made, any aspect of evil must be rejected. And this includes evil that may come with a spiritual image. The words that Paul is using here in the... um, and the original Greek seemed to have the idea of something that has the image of evil, or in other words, or, or is evil in its core, but doesn't necessarily appear so. So he says, abstain from every form of evil, even evil that seems to have a, a superficially spiritual image. So after these instructions having to do with the congregational life, Paul's coming into the last few verses of the letter here, starting at verse 23, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. I want you to notice something there. Paul used a construction in those two verses that is very interesting. He does it in the context of sort of a prayer or a blessing to them that the God of peace himself would sanctify them completely. Again, you know the idea behind the word sanctify. Do you remember that? It means to set apart. It means to make something different and distinct. It's to break old associations and it's to form a new association. Uh, For example, a dress is a dress, right? But a wedding dress is sanctified. It's set apart for a special and glorious purpose. God God wants us to be set apart to him. You, You would think it's very strange, first of all, if here you are at the big fancy wedding, right? And then now it's time for the bride to come out and everybody's waiting for the bride to emerge and she's wearing some weird, dumpy old dress, You'd say, what's wrong with this? It's not right. You'd also think it's strange if you went down to the supermarket, you know, and there you are putting your fruit in a bag and and preparing it to, to, to go to the cashier and you look around and there's somebody walking through the store doing their grocery shopping in a wedding dress. You'd say, well, that's strange. That isn't right because you associate that that wedding dress has a special purpose. It is set apart Well, in the same way. We are set apart unto God for a special, glorious purpose. And by the way, it says here, completely, right? Did you notice that in verse 23? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he made it clear, I should point out also in verse 23, may God himself sanctify you. Paul made it clear that sanctification is God's work in us. He puts this emphasis in several words here in these two verses where he says uh, himself, where he says, be preserved in the passive sense, and in he who calls you is faithful and in he who will do it. This emphasis completes Paul's previous exhortations. You know, let's remind ourselves, Paul has been speaking to the Thessalonians in the previous sections a lot about what they must do, but Paul never intended for them to do it in their own power. Many Christians are defeated on account of self-reliance more than they are on account of satanic attack. And so he says, no, no, rely on the Lord's sanctifying power in you. And so in this whole context, he's talking about the believer's complete sanctification. But as he speaks about that, did you pick up on that phrasing that he used in verse 23, where he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. I want you to know that this verse right here has caused some fairly significant theological controversy because Paul uses spirit soul and body all in one verse and it's medley it has led many people to adopt what is called i'm going to throw out a big word to you a trichotomist view Tri meaning three and cotomist meaning i don't know what cotomist means but it means a three-part view believing that man is made up of three distinct parts spirit soul and body and i don't know if you're sensitive to this at all there are people who get into some big debates in the Christian world as to whether the trichotomist view is correct or the dichotomist view is man made up of two parts or three parts and I don't know maybe this whole debate doesn't interest you at all to be honest it doesn't interest me a lot because I see it right here that Paul says spirit, soul, and body Now, some people can point to passages that that seem to say that the human being has four parts to them. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, it says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Or I can point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 34, where it seems to divide man's nature into two parts, into body and spirit. I can point you to other passages where it seems that soul and spirit mean the same thing. Other times, there are other passages that seem to make a real distinction between soul and spirit. And so I don't know if it's easy to make a distinction between soul and spirit, but this is what's glorious. Do you remember that great passage from Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and which can make the distinction between soul and spirit. Yes, there's a great similarity. There's a great connection between soul and spirit. But in some way, they are separate. Some people, and I'm going to quote here from the great Greek scholar, uh, Dean Alford. He described the spirit and the soul this way. He said, the spirit is the highest and the distinctive part of man, the immortal. And then he says, the soul is the lower or animal soul containing the passions and the desires, which we have in common with the brutes or the animals, but in which, but which in us are ennobled and drawn up by the spirit. And so I would say essentially that there is a distinction between spirit and soul. And I agree with the trichotomist view understanding, however, that there are many passages in the Bible where spirit and soul are used to refer to the same thing. Now, he says here, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. And I would say that there's something inspired by the Holy Spirit in this order in which they're listed. God intends there to be a hierarchy within the human person, ordered first with the Spirit, then with the soul, and finally with the body. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that the body is inherently evil. That contradicts Paul's main thought here. That the entire person is set apart and preserved unto God, that we're complete unto him in spirit, soul, and body. God saves your body just as much as he saves your spirit or soul. And the body has a definite and a real role in the whole plan of salvation. God intends your body to be resurrected into a new body. So I'm not being anti-body here. But I'm just saying that there is an order, a hierarchy that God intends spirit, soul, and body. God designed the human being to live after this order, spirit, soul, and body. But think about it. How do many, many people live in the world today? They live in the order of body, soul, spirit. No, you're supposed to put the needs of your spirit at top priority, then your needs of the soul, and then finally the needs of the body. But instead, many, many people They live their life with their most attention to their body. Then they give some attention to their soul and maybe no attention to their spirit. This is how God works in us and how he wants us to order our life. Then here, verse 25, there's sort of a final request for prayer. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I find it wonderful that Paul was an apostle. And we think about it, the Thessalonian church was made up of all young Christians, right? All these people had only been Christians for a matter of months. And yet here, this high apostle asks these young believers, would you please pray for me? And then he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. The idea is that Paul wanted those who read the letter to greet all the Christians in Thessalonica on his behalf. The idea there is if Paul was there in person, he would greet them all with a holy kiss, but since he's not there, he would send the greeting through the letter. Then finally, the conclusion of the letter, verses 27 and 28, he says, I charge you by the Lord Jesus, or excuse me, by the Lord, that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Aren't we kind of surprised by the strength of Paul's phrasing right here in verse 27? I charge you by the Lord. It's a strong phrase. It was very important that this epistle be read among Christians. And this is an unusual statement. It's unique in Paul's letters. And many different reasons have been suggested as to why Paul added this phrase uniquely at the end of this letter. Well, Many people believe, I don't think we can say for certain, but I'm inclined to believe it, that this was the first letter that Paul ever wrote. And since this was his first letter, there was, as of yet, no established custom of the public reading of his letters. And so he wanted to make sure that the practice was established. Hey, I'm writing this letter for the whole church, not just for one or two people, so make sure it's read. Secondly... Since the letter was a substitute for the personal presence of Paul, he didn't want any disappointment at his absence to dampen the spread of the letter. Hey, hey, we just got a letter from Paul. Well, did Paul bring it? No, he's not here. Oh, who cares about the letter? No, no, no he didn't want anybody to think that way. Third, Paul wanted to make sure that the church heard the letter firsthand, not secondhand. In other words, you know how that works, right? Well, were you at church last Sunday? No, I wasn't at church. Well, let me tell you what Paul said in his letter. And you know how it is, right? You've ever played that game where one person says something to another person, they say it to another person, and a third and fourth person, and by the time you get down to the fourth or fifth person, the message is completely changed. Paul says, no, I want everybody to hear it straight from me. And then, perhaps Paul feared, fourthly, that people would do what is in their nature to do and that they would just look up the passages in the letter that spoke to the issues that they were most interested in and they would ignore the other part, right? Can you imagine one of the Thessalonian believers who's really troubled over their father who believed in the Lord but recently passed away and oh man, I, I just need that question answered. So all they want to read is the passage in Thessalonians where Paul deals with that question. Where Paul's saying, no, 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 you need to hear the whole letter because there's more for you in this letter than just that. But then finally, after that very strong admonition, Paul ends the letter with this familiar exhortation in verse 28 where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Nearly all Paul's letters begin and end with the idea of grace. And I would say that this is also true of almost everything that God has to say to his people. God loves to begin and end with grace. You know, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's his bestowal of love and acceptance on us because of who he is and because of what Jesus has done. Grace means that God likes you and the reasons for his liking you are in him. Grace means that you can stop working for God's love and that you can just receive it. And so it's very appropriate that this letter, the first of Paul's preserved correspondence to the churches, that this letter full of love, encouragement, and instruction ends on a note of grace. It's good for the Thessalonians, and it's good for us. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you so much for this letter. We think of all these exhortations, Lord, and about our personal spiritual life, about getting along with one another and others in the church and, and just about how we should regard ourselves completely sanctified before you. Well, Lord, we think about all these things and we just need your grace to live them out. We, we, we don't want to get into the trap of thinking that our Christian life is something that we live and sort of present it unto you for your blessing. But no, Lord, it has to be your blessing in and through us that enables us to live this life. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to you and to your word. And we ask, God, especially, that the, the flame of the Holy Spirit be burning within us brightly and that we do nothing to quench it, but rather, Lord, that we fan this flame to see your goodness increase among us. We thank you and praise you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.